Today's reading is taken from James chapter 3, from verse 13 to 18. If you're wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you're bitterly jealous, there's self-ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For your jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and self-ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Yemi. Well, you never know what a day will bring forth. Adam, I heard your prayer this morning, praying for those that uh, may be going through different times and experiences as we come here to, uh, to worship this morning. Last night, or la- this morning, the phone rang at 1 o'clock, and many of you have been praying for, for Marg's brother, Larry, who has, is in the late stages of cancer. Uh, last night, he went home to heaven, and uh, we just, uh, our hearts are sad but so rejoicing because he was so ready to go and the pain level was so high. And so we were, we were sad and rejoicing. And at the 10 minutes later, the phone rang again, and uh, it was uh, our daughter Janelle saying that uh, Sam and Trudy Bartels, who was a young couple in our church over at Southwest, were having uh, a baby. So they dropped the, the little one off, two years old, and then they were going to scoot off to the hospital. But actually, the baby was born in Janelle and John's home. <laughs> he would not wait. So the mixture of uh, sorrow and sadness, uh, and those are all the things that are a part of life. So we welcome little Jesse, uh, little Jesse Bartels, and he's healthy and strong. Fortunately, my daughter is a nurse in that very area of labor and delivery. So uh, they just little, made a little bed right at the entrance of the house, and little Jesse came into the world. So we're giving to God for that. Well, we're back in James this morning, and uh, Pastor Adam preached a marvelous sermon last week from the first half of chapter 3. And now we're into the second half. And I think actually there's a very definite linkage between the two sections, and I think you'll probably see it as we're in progress here this morning. By the way, I'm not going to rush this sermon uh, because we're we're camped here for a couple of Sundays, uh, and it'll give us some time for a little detouring within the passages. So again, glad you're here this morning. If you've ever made a foolish decision of any kind, it's a good morning to be here. Probably you haven't. I mean, you look so well put together that you've never made a foolish decision in your life. But if you have made a foolish decision uh, with your finances or with your job or with your vocation or maybe even your physical health uh, or your spiritual health, uh, if you've ever said something 
that you regretted and you thought, oh, why did I ever say that? Uh, or if you've ever invested hundreds of hours in front of the 60-inch screen in your home and you say, why did I waste all that time doing that? Uh, or if you've ever made a decision and you look back and you say, that was dumb, well, welcome. You've joined all of our ranks. Uh, glad you can tune in and uh, hear some great words from the Bible this morning. Because I think James has some amazing insight for us. We make millions of decisions in a lifetime. I mean, how many, how many decisions will we make today? And uh, the summary of all of those decisions of a lifetime is really who we are. We are the sum total of our decisions. Uh, if we make lots of great decisions in life, the Bible has a term for that. The Bible calls it wise. The Bible calls it wise. We are wise. Not lucky. Not wealthy. Not successful. But wise. Wisdom in the Bible is not the same thing as having a high IQ. Nor is it related to having three degrees behind your name. Wisdom is the ability to make great decisions. Now here's a little reminder. The biggest difference between people who flourish in life and those who don't is not money or health or talent or connections or good looks. It's wisdom, the ability to make good decisions. So wisdom levels the playing field. You don't have to come from a successful family with all the perks. You don't have to be in the best physical shape, although it's a great idea. In fact, you can have some very severe physical health issues. You don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to be well healed, as they say. What it takes to flourish in this life more than anything else is wisdom. Israel, the nation, talked about wisdom a lot. Uh, when we were kids, we had crazy little sayings, you know, like if somebody said, I really love this hot dog, somebody else would pipe up and say, well, if you love it so much, why don't you marry it? We had a low bar for what was funny. The Israelites loved wisdom so much that they wanted to marry it. They wanted to personify it. And so they talked about it as if it were a person. Proverbs 9.3 says, Wisdom has sent out her servants, and she calls from the highest point of the city, let all who are simple come to my house. Lady Wisdom. Now Solomon, as you know, was a very wise king. During his lifetime, he wore so many different hats. He was a theologian. Uh, he was an architect, he was a writer, he was uh, a diplomat, he was an ambassador, he was a poet, he was an engineer, he was a philosopher, he was a philanthropist, I mean all those hats, and he was able to cross all of these vocational lines and do it all so well. And by the end of his life, he was the husband of 700 wives and 300 concubines. And that's where his wisdom evaporated. 
Try to manage a thousand relationships. Impossible. So no wonder he finally crashed and burned. But before that, he reached an unparalleled zenith in terms of accomplishment. Why did Solomon achieve so much? Well, you no doubt know the answer to that question. The answer to the question is in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 7, where God came to Solomon and he said to him, What do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. I mean, imagine that you could ask God for anything you want, and he would give it to you. I mean, what would you choose as your major request? Would your mind go to your financial needs? Would you say $50 million would be perfect? I could do everything I want to do. Or would your mind go to your health status to say, maybe I can be free of this pain? Or would your mind go to uh, relationships and the healing of those relationships? Would you even give a thought as to how Solomon replied? Solomon said, you were so good to my dad, and I'm the king, and I feel very intimidated by this whole thing, and look at all the people I have to, to rule over and keep it all together. So God, I ask you for wisdom and knowledge to lead them properly, uh, for who could possibly govern this great people of yours? What a great answer. And God was pleased with that answer. And God said, I will give you wisdom and I will give you the knowledge that you requested. But I also will give you wealth and fame such as no other king has ever had before you or ever will have in the future. Incredible. God not only granted the request, and he, by the way, he gave a bonus, a huge bonus. Pretty amazing. The first choice was wisdom and knowledge, or the word could be translated better, understanding. The Lord gave Solomon wisdom and understanding. Now, if you're reading from the New International Version this morning, the opening verse of our passage in James asks this question, who is wise and understanding among you? Now, all of us, I'm sure, have made some decisions that we probably regret. Regret If we could do a do-over, oh, man, we would do it so differently. But wisdom is actually learning from our mistakes so we don't repeat it. And wisdom is more about relational things than it is about technical things. Dale Carnegie had a little line that went, the person who gets ahead in life is the person who can get along with people. There's a lot of truth in that. The person who gets ahead in life is the person who can get along with people. We somehow relate wisdom to education. And that's not necessarily true. You can have a strong academic background and not be wise. You can have a very high IQ of all things and not be wise. James speaks in the earlier part of the chapter to teachers. 
And one of the problems that a teacher has is his or her tongue. The counsel of James is not to be too eager to be a teacher because your tongue can get you in deep trouble unless you control it. Now, here's the connection of the second part of James to the first part. A teacher communicates with his or her lips, but also with his or her life. So you're always communicating, either with your lips or with your life or both. Now, can you think about some teachers who really impacted your life? We probably all have a favorite teacher tucked away in our heart. And what is it that we loved about that teacher? Whether that was in high school or in college or in university or in seminary. Uh, well, it was, it, it was somewhat their teaching ability, their teaching gift. But mainly, I think you would agree, it was their life. It was their kindness. It was their authenticity. It was their personal interest in us. So it's the life that James is really concerned about. I'm convinced that James looked, looks at some who were giving leadership in that early church, and he was most concerned about their heart. He was concerned about their life. He was concerned about their character. So James takes some time to pause and send a message to leaders, uh, but I think really it's to all of us. It's a, it, it, it's a word that's apropos to all of us at all times. So first of all, he gives two marks of a person who has wisdom. Two marks of a person who has wisdom. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. That's verse 13. I want to remind you of a couple of qualities of a person who is wise. And it's good to ask the question, are these marks readily apparent in my life? And you can take the check this morning. You can, you can listen to this and you can put the test to yourself and to say, given that, am I wise? First of all, the mark of good behavior. James says, if you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life. The New American Standard Version puts it this way, let him show his wisdom by his good behavior. Now, perhaps the word, the term behavior is more helpful here. And it certainly ties in with all that James has been teaching up to this point about faith and good works, and how he always puts those together. If you say you have faith, then it must follow in the fact that you do, you have good works. It's reflected in the way that you live. So wisdom is not about our achievements. It's not about our educational status. It has nothing to do with our bank account or our career choice or, or anything like that. The mark of wisdom is the way we live our lives. It's the mark of obedience. I mean, that's the bottom line. Wisdom is being willing to change, willing to say, that's not the best road for me. I choose to take this road. That's not the best decision for my life right now to honor God, so I'm going to make this decision instead. Wisdom 
is a lifetime of walking with God and listening to the Spirit and hearing the nudges and making appropriate changes that result in good behavior. I like what J.I. Packer says about wisdom. He says, wisdom is like driving a car. You have decisions to make about pressing on the accelerator, braking, steering. You try to see and do the right thing in the actual situation of life. In order to drive well, you need to keep your eyes wide open to what is before you and use your head. To live wisely, you must be clear-eyed about people and life. Seeing life as it is and then responding with a mind dependent on the wisdom of God. Being wise doesn't mean we understand everything that's going on in life. Because uh, we just don't. Some drivers, as they drive along, maybe have an engineering background. They know exactly how that road is constructed. They can tell you everything about that road and how it was built. There are others of us that just drive, and we don't think about how that pavement was, was put together and the kind of the heat and the temperature and the, the, the composition. So there are others who are less knowledgeable, but they consistently do the right thing as they wisely drive through life. We don't have to understand everything that's happening around us to be able to be wise and to be able to make the best choice wherever we're at in life. At every intersection, just make the right choice, and that's wisdom. So that's the first mark, our behavior, the way we live our lives. I mean, it's a level playing field, rich or poor, educated or not, country of origin, academics. That's not the criteria. It's our lives. So first, the mark of behavior. Secondly, the mark of gentleness or humility. Still in verse 13, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. Now again, the New American Standard Version says, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. So the mark of a wise person is their gentleness or their humility. We really aren't attracted to this word gentleness in our culture because it seems to me that it, it connotates weakness. And who wants to be called, oh, she's so gentle, or he's so gentle? Because we have the sense that that means, oh, he's so weak, or she's so weak. Although it's one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. I think it's too bad that we lost some of the original meaning of the word gentleness. It really means power under control, strength under control. I mean, it's the picture of a wild horse that gets tamed, and when it's tamed, it's able to be used. The wild horse doesn't lose any of its power. Uh, it's just that the power or the strength of that horse is now under control and can be used for the purposes of making a difference. It pulls well. That power can be channeled and utilized to pull a heavy load. Things would have been chaotic 
with that horse had it not been broken. But this self-control has now come and the self-control characterizes this horse. And so it is with us. When God touches our lives, he tames. He tames that reckless spirit and he brings it under control so we can be gentle and humble and get in the harness and pull with effectiveness in the kingdom. Interesting as well about this verse that the term was used in Plato's day of a teacher or a prof who would dialogue with his students without getting angry. Uh, Sometimes students have tough questions and they will push a prof or a teacher back into the corner with their inquiring questions. And uh, a teacher at some times may tend to get a little flabbergasted with the questioning and lose it. But the term here is that the teacher has to stay in control and not lose it by getting angry, especially if they feel like they've been pushed into a corner. Now, none of all the teachers, we have many teachers in South in, in uh, uh, TCC, would ever feel this way, I know. I mean... Sometimes it's okay to say, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I'm just learning too. And students, if you're listening this morning, don't make it a game to see if you can push your teachers so they lose control. Be merciful to them. I remember a, a class giving a, giving a teacher such a hard time when we were in grade 11. I look back and I say, dumb, 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 dumb. Oh, we needed to have a do-over in that class. That was not wisdom at all. We were so mean. And as I look back, I'm embarrassed at our lack of respect and, uh, and the tension and the frustration we brought to that man's life. Well, we were away a couple of weeks ago, uh, and we attended another church with the same name as uh, Southwest Community Church, only this one is in Indian Wells, It's a very large church, and they have a new pastor there. He's a young man from Mississippi. And you can tell that he has all the energy of a wild horse. Uh, and, but he has brought it under control. He is dynamic, and he preaches with a broken heart. And so this Sunday that we were there, they were saying farewell to their worship pastor, uh, who had been at that church for, for over 10 years. But it was really heartwarming to watch the senior pastor because he knelt at the feet of the worship pastor and prayed for him. And he said, why do I kneel? He said, because these are the feet of one who brings good news. And he said, I honor that. And uh, I, I pray for this man as he's moving on to take on another ministry somewhere else. But he honored the worship pastor He prayed at his feet and he asked God to bless his ministry and to uh, endue him with power uh, in, in the coming days and years. But that senior pastor, he's a wild horse, but his heart is gentle because he's brought all of that passion under control and he is strong and outgoing and filled with passion and energy, but he's under control. It's a beautiful thing to see. 
So the mark of a wise person is that they're gentle and they are humble. And it tells you a lot if you're interviewing somebody for a job. You just have to look at them and be with them for a little bit and say, are they humble? Are they humble? If they are humble, there's a very good chance that they're wise. If they're proud and arrogant, there's a very good chance that they're unwise. Jesus said of himself, I am gentle and lowly in heart. So gentleness does not suggest indecisiveness or being wishy-washy or having a lack of confidence. It's the quality of a person who is wise, like Jesus. There's a sobering passage, you know, I was reading this week in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that speaks to the issue of a leader in the church. And I think it reinforces what James is saying. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 24 says, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, be able to teach, and be patient with difficult people, gently instruct those who oppose the truth. And do you see how teaching is sandwiched between kindness and gentleness? Paul starts off by saying a servant must be kind, and then he goes to teaching, and then he returns to gentleness. And so in between the kindness and the gentleness is the ability to teach. I love it. Have you ever observed some brand new Christian when they understand the message of the gospel? They go great guns with it because they are so excited, they are so filled with passion, uh, and they're forceful in their homes. They're ramming the truth down their family's throats or at work. I mean, they're just pounding it home because they're so excited about it. You admire their passion, but you see how everybody tries to get away from them a little bit, and they kind of say, what is their problem? And they back off. No wisdom. No wisdom. The wisdom will come, but it takes some time. There is a boldness, but it's not yet under control. Paul says, kindness, then teaching, then gentleness. Be wise when you share the gospel. So, do you... Did you take the test? How did you make out? You measure wisdom by your behavior and you measure wisdom by your gentleness. As you follow the text along, you come to two marks of an unwise person. Now I think if we're going to take the, if we would take the whiteboard out and we would say, uh, give me all the things that you think would characterize an unwise person, We'd fill that whiteboard very quickly. What would we say? Putting foot in mouth with our speech. Inappropriate behavior in a certain setting. Lipping back at our parents. Exasperating our kids. Running a red light. Somebody ran a red light in front of me the other day. Oh, the consequences of, of that could have been disastrous. Overspending. Overscheduling, eating too much, eating not enough, not drinking enough water, all of, all of these things. Saying words in haste or when we're angry, spouting a, a bunch of things. 
What do you think are the marks of an unwise person? According to James, and I'll keep talking as you try to discover the two marks in verse 14. Uh, the marks that you would, you would have come up with uh, uh, as you look at this verse. First of all, the mark of being bitterly jealous. The mark of being bitterly jealous. It's quite descriptive. Not just jealous, but James says bitterly jealous. Probably meaning that the jealousy leads to a deep bitterness in the heart. And that seemed to be the condition of the church uh, or some of the churches to whom James is writing. There is jealousy. The leaders are frustrated with other leaders because they're vying for position in the pecking order. Story is told of two men who lived in a certain city. One was envious and the other was jealous. And the ruler of the city sent for them and said he wanted to grant them one wish each with the proviso that the one who chose first would get exactly what he asked for while the other man would get exactly twice what the first man had asked for. So the envious man was ordered to choose first, but he immediately found himself in a quandary. He wanted to choose something great for himself, but he realized if he did so, that that would mean that the other person would get twice as much. So if he asked for $10 million, the other person would get $20 million. He thought about it for a while, and then he asked that one of his eyes be put out. Wow. Wow, that is a serious case of envy or jealousy. And it's one of the weapons of the enemy to create jealousy in our hearts so that our families are hurting, our homes are in pain, our churches get impacted. And yet jealousy and envy are part of, of all of life. And even impacting the church. The enemy has a way of attacking and creating the feeling that this is not fair. They're not treating me right. And it's prevalent today in Christian schools. It's prevalent in seminaries. It's prevalent in parachurch ministries. Prevalent in the local church. Prevalent on the mission field. It is a mark of lack of wisdom. It is the mark of an unwise person. Bitter jealousy. Secondly, the mark of selfish ambition. The context of this appears to be leaders in the early church causing discord by claiming superior knowledge and wisdom. And uh, it simply was a political move to move themselves forward. Probably looks different in whatever context, but it's the pushing of self forward in an attempt to gain power and control. It can be subtle. Maybe it's a slow rise to power in an organization, whether secular or Christian, being in the right place at the right time, making all the right moves, all the strategies. And we just need to remind ourselves again, listen, if God, if God wants to promote you, he will. The best thing we can do is lay it all at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, I'm just glad to be your servant. I'm just glad to be your servant. I'm yours. 
I don't need to promote myself. I just need to trust you and serve you faithfully wherever you lead me. Let God do the other work. Let God open the doors. Human wisdom says you have to get to where you want to go by your own engineering and your own strategy. Divine wisdom says if I submit to God, he'll take me where he wants me to go. I don't have to worry about it because God's in control. And I don't have to be jealous of anyone else because God's plans for me are perfect. And God's plans for you are perfect. Let's stand as we pray together. Father, your plans for us are always perfect. We thank you for your wonderful wisdom for our lives. We thank you that you are always interested in us walking faithfully and gently and carefully with you. So I pray, Father, as we learn from this passage this week and next week as well, that you just give us a heart, Lord, to really walk in your wisdom, to welcome you into our lives, to have you be first in our lives, so that in every way your name is glorified, your name is honored. In Jesus' name.